Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. All right, well, if you're here and you have uh, kids under the uh, fifth grade and under, uh, they will head back to Kids Church with Miss Rhonda, and they'll go just out these doors and, and back to the right to our fellowship hall, and they will have a time with her. Uh, for the rest of us, take your Bible and go with me to Gen- Genesis, yeah, that's right, Genesis chapter 4, All right, Genesis chapter 4. Now, if this is your first Sunday with us in this series, uh, let me kind of catch you up. So we're just, we're walking through, uh, looking at some of the characters in the book of Genesis, in this first book of the Bible. And when we started, we looked at God, because that's, that's where the Bible starts, that's where the book of Genesis starts, is with is with God, and what we saw in chapter 1 is that God is the author of creation, and as the author, he gets to set the rules, and he gets to, to tell us how we are to live as his creations. Now, in Genesis 1, we also saw that God created everything good. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Adam and Eve in chapter 2, and, and in that, we learned about God's plan for our relationship with him. We learned about uh, God's plan for our relationships with one another. Learned about God's plan for marriage, that, that it was to be one man and one woman for a lifetime. We saw God's perfect plan in action in chapters 1 and 2, that everything went well. There was no strife, there, there was no uh, arguing between uh, people, between a husband and a wife. There was no uh, separation between God and people. It was paradise in the garden. And then last week in Genesis 3, we looked at the fall. Adam and Eve choosing their own way instead of God's way and, and how everything in creation came unglued and, and God's perfect plan or God's, God's perfect creation was, um, was disjointed. And at the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve are ultimately kicked out of the garden, removed from the tree of life. And today in chapter 4, we're going to see the further consequences of the fall. We're going to see what happens as sin progresses. And, and really, throughout the rest of Genesis, and, and I would argue throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the consequences of sin. And, and so know this, right? Before, before we dive into this passage, just know that sin always has consequences. And it's usually more than what we're willing to pay. See, see, that's the great lie of, of Satan to us, one of, one of the great lies, is, is that there's not that much cost involved when, when we sin. Because if we knew the, the great cost of what we were looking at, I, I, don't, think we would, um, I don't think we would go through with, with sinning, and yet there is great, um, there's a great cost that comes when we deviate from God's plan and take our own way, and we're going to see that fleshed out this morning. In Genesis 4. So if you have your Bible, stand with me. We're going to read Genesis 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17. That's really where we're going to focus this morning. We'll, we'll cover the last few verses at, at the very end. The Word of the Lord says this, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. 
And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he, God said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear, since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In verse 17, Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and and for the chance that we have, the, the opportunity we have to gather together as your people in a local church, to open up your word and, and to hear your words proclaimed. And so I pray that you will use me as your instrument this morning. Speak through me, not to proclaim my opinions, but to proclaim your word. Will you do that here in this room this morning? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, what we see right off the bat here is that even in the fallout of sin and, and the consequences that were given, as great as they were, they're still, um, God, they're still grace. God is still blessing these people who've turned against him. And that right off the bat here in chapter 4, we see that Adam and Eve were blessed with two sons, Cain, and Eve was rejoicing that she was blessed with a male child, and then Abel, his brother. And we're told that Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And then we're told in the course of time, they both brought offerings to the Lord. Now there's a lot of discussion uh, that, that happens in commentaries about why Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's wasn't. And I think the, the key for us is, is not to get caught up, well, well Abel brought um, flocks from, from his herd and, and Cain brought um, so, some of the produce of the land. What we see here is that they're, they're bringing what they have to give. They're bringing uh, the, the, the work of their hands and, and presenting it to the Lord. The difference, though, comes in one word that that we're given that describes Abel's offering. We're told in verse 4 that Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. 
In verse 3, we're simply told that in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce. And, and there is the contrast. And so what I think we see here is that in the beginning, Cain disobeyed God's command. There was disobedience to begin with on Cain's part. And that we're never told here that, that God had commanded um, Cain and Abel to bring uh, the first fruits of their, of their offering. But we see something about Cain's heart here. And that Abel, Abel wants to present the best of what he has to offer to God. And, and for Cain, it almost seems like an afterthought. Now, again, both, both grain and animal offerings are presented in the New Testament. Uh, we see both of them in, in, actually in the book of Exodus as um, offerings that were presented. And I think it's also interesting to note, we're not given anything here that, that makes it seem like this is a sin offering, but rather it's an offering of gratitude to the Lord. It's, it's bringing the Lord something, thanking Him for what He's done them. And so the difference is the way each of these offerings were presented. Abel brought the firstborn. He brought the best as an act of worship to God. Cain just brought some. And so we see here that our attitudes matter when it comes to worship. So, so I, I'd be curious to ask you, how was your attitude when you walked in this morning? Was it an attitude of rejoicing? I get to gather with God's people this morning. We get to, we get to worship Almighty God. Or, or, or when that alarm went off, was it, man, it's Sunday already? Again? Didn't we just do this last week? See, it would appear that God cares deeply about our heart when it comes to worship. In Cain, we, we already see something about his disobedience in that he didn't care. He, he, he didn't put great care into his offering. He just may, maybe felt obligated. Well, this is what we do, right? We come in and we, I gotta, I gotta give the Lord something, so, so let's see what we got left. Now, what we see here is that, that it didn't stop with disobedience. And, and so I've titled this sermon this morning, Anatomy of a Murder, because we're going we're gonna to walk in. Like, I don't think Cain just woke up one day and go, hmm, seems like a good idea to kill my brother today. Just, I mean, you know, I, we haven't killed anyone yet. It, maybe it's time, right? I mean, in the course of humanity, there are four of us, you know, the um, earth's getting a little crowded. Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to take care of this, Right? No, there is a process that, that's happening here. And, and so what we're going to see is anatomy, not just of, of murder, but we're going to see anatomy really of, of sin taking root in the heart of someone this morning. Sin taking root in the heart of Cain and ignoring warning signs. And it starts with disobedience, disobedience to God. Right? Maybe not in a big, in a big area, but, but certainly in his, in his attitude, he was not giving God the glory. What we see next is that, that that act of disobedience devolved into hatred. So look with me at, at a, the second half of verse 5. We're told that Cain was furious and he looked despondent. 
Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, don't miss this. Cain disregarded the Lord. And when God rejected the offering that he had to bring, Cain, we're told, became angry and despondent. And yet God pursued him in his anger, in his despondence, in his sin. The idea we're given here is not that, not that Cain was, was seeking out to, to talk to the Lord, not that he even, he even had any care what the Lord thought maybe at this point, but God seeks out Cain. And he says to him, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. So here's what we see, okay? God recognizes the bitterness that's creeping in to Cain's heart. And he brings it to his attention. This is why I think in in Matthew 5, and and I don't have anything on the screen for you this morning, but you can jot this down in in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to explain why why not just our outward actions matter, but why the inward uh, motivations, inward attitudes matter so much. Because in Matthew 5, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. In this case, Jesus is referencing the Ten Commandments, saying, you, you know that the law says to not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. He says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So you see that Jesus goes well beyond just the the simple act of murdering and says that that the issue when it comes to murder is is not just that physical act of taking someone's life, but it's the hatred that that was in the heart well before the outward action ever took place. And so in fact, Jesus even calls on us to examine our hearts and and to, to put a stop to that. Verse 23 Matthew 5, he says, so if, you are ang- so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. See, God calls us here to recognize the anger and bitterness that so often creeps up in our hearts. And to be proactive in healing relationships, just like God did in Genesis 1, where God goes to Cain and says, Cain, listen, Cain, listen I, don't, I don't know why you're angry and despondent. If you, if you do right, if, you, if your heart is right with me, you, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, he said, sin is crouching at the door. Essentially what God's telling Cain here is, Cain, you have a choice. You have an option about what you're going to go. You, you can repent or you're about to walk down a, a road that you never even thought possible. There, there's an evil lurking in your heart that you can't even imagine. We're not told 
what Cain's response is to God, if there was one. We're given nothing. Until, verse 8, where Cain calls to his brother Abel and says, let's go out to the field. Charles Spurgeon had something interesting to say about this passage. He said, if I if I desire ill for someone, I have within me what would desire his death. And what is that after all but murder in the heart? If I desire ill for someone, I have within me what would desire his death. And what is that after all but murder in the heart? Now, now let's pause for just a minute and ask why Hatred is so damaging. Hatred is so damaging because oftentimes hatred will take something that we don't like about someone. Maybe someone they maybe something they've done to us, maybe something we've heard them say. And hatred begins to identify that person based on this one thing. If you look at our culture right now, we have a culture that, that thrives on anger and outrage and hatred of those who disagree with us for whatever reason, right? I mean, like, I'm so glad that, that football season is starting so that people can argue over, like, just football instead of everything else, right? So at least we're agreeing on what we're arguing about. Whereas everything else in our culture, we've... For some reason, and I'm afraid oftentimes believers are, are not much better at this than the rest of the culture, but, but we've bought into this lie that if you disagree with me, there must be something fundamentally flawed about you, and there may be, in fact, no redeeming quality about you whatsoever, because you disagree with me. And rather than do what I think the Bible would call us to do and what Throughout history has been most productive and sit down at the table and discuss differences of opinion, differences of belief. It's much easier to go in 280 characters on Twitter, paint someone as, as something they might not actually be. And, and I, I like what Spurgeon says here. When, when we wish ill for someone, when we say, well, I wish this person would just disappear, what is that other than wishing their death? And what is that, after all, he says, but murder in the heart? As I said, Cain's act of murder wasn't something he just woke up one day and said, Man, my brother's annoying. I think I'll kill him today. No, he, th- this hatred, this bitterness had had grown in his heart for a long time. And if we look around at our culture right now, don't we see hatred and bitterness growing? You know, when we read the stories of the the mass shootings that have taken place, you read manifestos that they've put out, you see hatred and anger and bitterness taking root for a long time. When, when we allow ourselves to become bitter, 
where we don't confess and repent of anger in our hearts, sin can become destructive beyond anything we can imagine. In Cain's case, his hatred eventually devolves into him murdering his brother. Look at verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, if if you're paying attention here in verse 8, there's a simple phrase that's repeated a couple of times. And and in fact, it's repeated multiple times between verses 9 and 11. And that is simply the two words, his brother. What Moses, the author of of Genesis, is trying to get us to, to recognize is that this is one brother killing his own brother. And that's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to be unbelievable. That Cain would lure his brother into the field and kill him. And then in verse 9, again, notice this. The Lord comes to Cain. And it doesn't strike him down, although he has, God would have every right to strike Cain down here. He doesn't. He said to him, he asks him, where is your brother Abel? Now that should remind us of God's question to Adam in Genesis 3, the simple question of where are you? Not because God was curious. Not because God's walking out to to Cain and saying, hey, I haven't seen your brother in a while. What's up with Abel? No, he knows exactly what's, what's happened. He's calling Cain on the carpet. And in fact, the This question is phrased in such a way that it should remind us of that question to to Adam when God seeks out Adam and Eve in the garden and says, where are you? And I think one of the things we see here is that these two acts are tied together. That, That act of disobedience in the garden has led to this act of murder in chapter four. Since consequences are still in action, sin has progressed. Now, at this point, again, Cain has a choice. And, and I'm always curious, what would have, what would have happened if, if Cain had said, God, I've, I've sinned, I had anger against Abel in my heart, and I killed him? I, I wonder what, what happens here if, if that's the case. Instead, Cain, first of all, lies. Verse 9, I don't know. And then he asks this question, am I my brother's guardian or am I my brother's keeper? So on top of lying, then then, then Cain deflects the the question, trying to avoid answering it maybe. What I find really interesting is that the rest of Scripture, particularly the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, will make very clear that yes, In fact, Cain was to be his brother's keeper. See, here's something that we've lost, especially now in 2019 with with our um, individualized community. What I mean by that is we still live in community, right? We still operate in community. We we operate around a lot of people, but we do so not really as part of a community, uh, but like this. You ever seen a group of teenagers in a restaurant? 
Like they're all together, but they're not together. We've lost this sense of identity that we are our brothers and our sisters' keepers. One of the things we declare when we gather together as a local church is that we are dependent on one another to hold us accountable in our relationship with Christ, to encourage us in our walk with Christ. See, gathering with a local church is essentially a declaration that I am weak and I need others. To which the Bible would say yes and amen. Go back and read the book of Acts, especially in chapter 2 and chapter 4, where we have a description of what the, the early church did and how they, how they lived together, how they took care of needs within the community of the church. When needs arose, people sold their stuff so that they could meet that need. How far we've come from that reality. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. We're so concerned now about staying out of other people's business when I feel like sometimes God is crying out, get in one another's business. Then we see the consequences starting in verse 10 and really going down through verse 17. Then he said, this is again God speaking, what have you done? Your your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now in, in Genesis 3, as God was Um, giving out consequences for the fall to Adam, he he said that the ground would be fighting against Adam. As as Adam sought to cultivate the ground, he would have to overcome weeds and thorns and thistles and and, and this active rebellion of the ground against being cultivated and being worked. For Cain, God actually takes it a step further and says the ground will never again produce for you. And he'll become, he says, a restless wanderer on the earth. So for Cain, listen to, look, look at the consequences that Cain has here. He lost his brother because he killed him. He lost his job because his, his, God says that the ground's not going to produce for you anymore. As a farmer, that's a problem. And And God says, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth, meaning that that Cain now lost the rest of his family and his home. Sin always has consequences. Verse 13, Cain answered, Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Why Why is this happening to me? This is This is too great. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Now keep in mind, in the early days here, everyone's related, right? Everyone's family. And then the Bible will tell us, uh, certainly in the Old Testament days, that, that um, 
family would avenge murders for, for their family. So Cain realizes what he's done. God's banishing him from his home. And he says, someday someone's going to find me, realize who I am, and they're going to kill me. To which we might be tempted to say, yes, and you deserve it. Which, of course, is true. Right? The wages of sin is death. Does he deserve anything other than, than to be killed? Look at verse 15. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Even in even for this murderer, and, and by all accounts, an unrepentant murderer, right? We haven't seen anything here that would lead us to believe that, that Cain goes, man, there's something in my heart that I really ought to confess here. Like, there's, there's something wrong. We, we don't see any sign of that. And yet God shows great compassion and giving him some distinguishing mark. We don't know what that is, but it was obviously something that made him recognizable so that no one would kill him. And what I find interesting, I, th- I think at this point, is that Cain still has a choice. Cain could have repented, returned to the Lord. But instead, we're told in verse 16, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence. This isn't just a physical leaving. This is Cain hardening his heart against the Lord. Saying, I will not repent. He broke fellowship with the Lord. Now we might expect that to be the end of Cain's story. And it's not quite yet. It's close, but it's not quite yet. Because even in the fact that, that Cain left the presence of the Lord, wanted nothing to do with God, broke fellowship with him completely, we still see God's hand of compassion in verse 17. Look at this. Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Cain's blessed with a child and he builds a city and he names that after his son. Don't never underestimate the the blessing of God upon even people that want nothing to do with God. This is what we would we would call is, is because, because we have the image of God within us. Even, a, even someone who would never think to give God any glory, to give God a second of the day, to, to, to consider repenting of sin and trusting in, in Jesus, there's something that comes with the image of God. That God has compassion on those who don't deserve compassion. And aren't you glad? Because I think the Bible makes pretty clear that none of us are deserving of God's compassion. This is the last we hear of Cain. His story ends. And we, we, don't, we don't see him again. We do, however, see the, the effects of sin deepen. 
So quickly, in, in verses 18 through 24, um, we're introduced to uh, Lamech, who gives us the first case of polygamy, the first case of a man who had multiple wives departing from God's original plan, which we clearly saw in the garden was one man and one woman. And, and we'll certainly see more instances of this, even in, in people who are, even in men who are uh, followers of God, committed to God. We see that this becomes a curse upon God's people as, as a pattern. Most notably, maybe David and Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of discussion now. Well, well, what, well, clearly the Bible condones this. And no, I would say it doesn't. It describes for us the way these people lived. But if you look at the lives of those who engaged in polygamy, it never ends well. David's family becomes an absolute train wreck. Solomon, we're told, even though he was the wisest man who's ever lived, his, even though he sought God in his early years, his, his heart, we're, we're told, was turned away because of his many wives. We see that departure from God's plan here. And then we see yet another murder. Lamech in verse 23 says, For I killed a man for wounding me. So here we see maybe not... Maybe not a murder out of, out of hatred, but one out of revenge. And so don't, don't miss this. Chapters 1 and 2, everything's perfect. Chapter 3, sin enters and, and the fall happens. Chapter 4, we have two murders right off the bat. Now this seems like things are going, uh, well, not well, right? I mean, th- things are not headed in a positive direction here. And then comes 25. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since God killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And look at this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's chaos. That's why I titled this kind of whole... Genesis series, Characters in Chaos, because we're going to look at a lot of characters, we're going to look at a whole lot of chaos. There's plenty of that here. There's, there's a lot of chaos happening, and yet in the middle of chaos, God is restoring hope to his people. Population of mankind continues to grow. Adam and Eve are blessed with another child, through whom the promise of the snake crusher that we saw in chapter 3, verse 15 will come. And the end of verse 26 is it's kind of low-key, and, and I, don't think that, I don't think we have a good way in English to describe what's happening here, but uh, it says that people begin to call on the name of the Lord. What that's really describing is, is worship. It's not just uh, people calling out to God because of distress, saying, oh, oh God, help us, we've messed things up, we need your help. No, it's, it's the idea that, um, that people are calling on God in worship. In Psalm 116, 17 the psalmist says this, I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. And thankfully, thousands of years later, here we are with people continuing to call on the name of the Lord. Now we live in a fallen world and, and we're seeing why our world is in such bad shape. It's been in bad shape for a long time. And yet what we see is that God still calls to his people. Just as God pursued 
Cain in the depths of his sin, God still pursues sinners today. Of course, that becomes clear in in sending Jesus to the earth to, to pay the way for us to be reconciled with God, to pay the penalty for our sins, die the death that we deserved, to live the life that we were called to live but couldn't. God still pursues us. And what I would say to us today is that no one is too far gone to turn around. I believe Cain had every opportunity up until his last breath where he could have repented and and turned to God. We're given no indication that he did that. And yet even in their gravely fallen state and things don't get better as we go into five and six next week. God still pursued his people. God still called his people to him. And his people still call on him. So as we wrap up, we got a lot of stuff here to unpack this morning. Um, First of all, where in your life do you recognize that that there's sin and and maybe anger and bitterness that, that you've harbored that could easily devolve into hatred, and, and from there, who, who knows where. Maybe there's some relationships that you need to seek to be, begin a process of reconciliation this morning. First and foremost, that, that primary relationship that, that you need to seek reconciliation in is to God. And what we see here is that God pursues us. So if you're here and you've been running from God for whatever reason, running from his plan for your life, afraid of, of what uh, repenting, of confessing sin, repenting and turning around and coming, coming to Christ would look like, what, what we see here is that God pursues his people and when, when his people open their, their eyes and turn to him, there's not condemnation, there's grace and compassion. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you just need to be reminded of the fact that even if you're a believer, if you've been a believer for a long time, there's still stuff in our lives that, that doesn't need to be there. There's still sin that we wrestle with on a daily basis. And yet even as we don't always pursue God, God pursues us. Maybe, maybe you've taken that for granted and you just need to rem- be reminded of God's grace and compassion for you and then that you would pause as as we're told at the end of chapter 4, and call on the name of the Lord. However the Lord's leading and speaking to you this morning, you respond. Let's pray and then we'll sing a song of response. Father, I thank you for this passage. As, As dark as it is, as disturbing as it is to us, I thank you that it serves as a warning to us of the dangers of sin, that it also serves as a reminder of your great love and compassion for us. Don't let us turn a blind eye to sin in our lives or, or sin in the lives of others. Help us remember that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. As part of the family of God, we're, we're, we're to hold one another up, to hold one another close. May we never take your grace and your mercy, your compassion for granted. 
may we continue to be humbled and awed by the fact that you would love us. If there's anyone here who's not experienced your love and your compassion, I pray you would arrest their hearts this morning. That they would step from death to life by confessing sins, repenting, turning away from that, and trusting in Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior. We thank you for sending him to free us from the power of sin and death. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless.